by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be discussing the latest uh, around uh, abortion legislation and uh, reproductive justice here in the U.S. Also going to be talking about the impact of the coronavirus on South Korea. And it's Friday, which means we're having our weekly sports segment, the Red Spin Report. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, I'm reminded today of... Archbishop Oscar Romero, a religious leader and activist in El Salvador during the 1960s and 1970s and onto the 80s. He was appointed Archbishop because during the early part of his career, he was actually a conservative and traditional religious figure towing the line of the Vatican. But the assassination of his fellow Catholic priest and friend, Rutilio Grande, for his political activism on behalf of El Salvador's peasants and poor transformed him. Romero became a champion of human rights for the people of El Salvador, preaching sermons against the injustices committed against poor Salvadorans that were broadcast on the Archdiocese radio station YSAX, injustices, by the way, that were committed by the Salvadoran army. And Romero publicly speaking out against the brutal military junta had already put him in the crosshairs of the U.S., but he did not stop. National Security Advisor Zbigniew Brzezinski had earlier written to the Pope urging him to direct Romero to support the military junta that deposed the previous military government in El Salvador, saying, quote, the archbishop that's Romero, has strongly criticized the junta and leaned towards support for the extreme left. We have warned against such a move, end quote. For the U.S. supporting the Salvadorian military that was being funded and trained by the U.S. and was carrying out brutal repression against the Salvadoran people was less of a problem than having the dirty communist Marxists in Cuba influence the country, which Brzezinski said in the same letter would be just as brutal and repressive if they came to power as the current people in power that were killing people in El Salvador. Without one lick of evidence to back any of that up, the U.S. officials said it was true, so it must have been so. That's how U.S. foreign policy went then, and that's how it still goes now. But Romero would not be silenced. In February 1980, he wrote a letter to President Jimmy Carter begging him to stop military aid to the Salvadoran government. Romero wrote, quote, because you are a Christian and because you have shown that you want to defend human rights, I venture to set forth for you my pastoral point of view in regard to this news and to make a specific request of you. I'm very concerned by the news that the government of the United States is planning to further El Salvador's arms race by sending military equipment and advisors to train three Salvadoran battalions in logistics, communications, and intelligence. If this information from the papers is correct, instead of favoring greater justice and peace in El Salvador, your government's contribution 
contribution will undoubtedly sharpen the injustice and the repression inflicted on the organized people whose struggle has been often for respect for their most basic human rights. For this reason, Given that as a Salvadoran and Archbishop of the Archdiocese of San Salvador, I have an obligation to see that faith and justice reign in my country. I ask you, if you truly want to defend human rights, to forbid that military aid be given to the Salvadoran government, to guarantee that your government will not intervene directly or indirectly with military, economic, diplomatic, or other pressures in determining the destiny of the Salvadoran people, end quote. Carter did not heed Romero's letter. On March 24th, Romero was assassinated with a bullet through the heart while celebrating mass. The assassination was ordered by a U.S.-trained, retired Salvadoran army major. And Carter only suspended military aid to El Salvador for a brief period of time, only after three American nuns and a U.S. lay missionary were raped and murdered by Salvadoran National Guard members in December 1980. And I remember Viola Liuzzo, a 39-year-old Detroit mother of five, married to a Teamsters union leader who was shot in the head and killed by a car full of Klansmen while driving on a deserted highway with Leroy Moten, a 19-year-old black man who was assisting her with shuttling participants in the just-concluded Montgomery March for voting rights back to Selma, Alabama. Liuzzo's close friendship with an African-American woman, Sarah Evans, was pivotal to her putting action to beliefs about equality she had already held. She helped organize Detroit protests, attended civil rights conferences. She joined and worked with the NAACP. On March 16th, Liuzzo took part in a protest at Wayne State University. And then she called her husband to tell him that she would be going to Selma after hearing the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. call for people of all faiths to come and help, saying that the struggle was, quote, everybody's fight. She contacted the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, who accepted her offer for help with delivering aid to various locations, welcoming and recruiting volunteers, and transporting volunteers and marchers to and from airports, bus terminals, and train stations with her car. Liuzzo joined thousands of people converging in Selma, Alabama for the march on Montgomery that ended on March 25, 1965, when she was assassinated transporting people back to Selma. Within 24 hours of Liuzzo's assassination by the Klan and the FBI's informant, Gary Thomas Rowe, who was in the car with the Klansmen, J. Edgar Hoover began a smear campaign against her to the press, the FBI, and the politicians claiming that Liuzzo was a drug addict and was engaged in sexual activity with Moten. Of course, none of that were true. And the four Klan members in the car, Collie Wilkins, Gary Rowe, the FBI informant, who you might as well say was a Klan member since he had advanced knowledge that this was going to happen. William Eaton and Eugene Thomas were arrested. Within 24 hours, President Lyndon Johnson appeared on national television to announce their arrest, but he made no mention that Thomas Rowe was an FBI informant protected by the FBI. A lot is at stake 
in the continued struggle for freedom. And we are in a continued protracted struggle for freedom. And we could lose quite a bit. We could lose our lives. But the least I can do, the very least I can do, is tell the truth and remember those who gave everything for us to continue this struggle and to ultimately win. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to it by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting a political, social and economic movement shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Anna Santoyo, a writer for Breaking the Change magazine, which you can check out at breakingthechainsmag.org. Anna, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Anna, Governor Brad Little of Idaho has uh, recently signed uh, a new abortion bill uh, that would ban abortions uh, after about six weeks of pregnancy, which is before many women are even aware that they are pregnant. And it also allows family members to sue uh, abortion providers, you know, family members of what is being termed a, quote, uh, pre-born child. And uh, he wrote in a message to the lieutenant governor, quote, while I support the pro-life policy in this legislation, I fear the novel civil enforcement mechanism will, in short order, be proven both unconstitutional and unwise. And so even though he thought it was both unwise and unconstitutional, he still signed it. And, and reportedly, um, this legislation in Indiana um, was sort of modeled after uh, a recent new abortion law in Texas. And so it seems like we continue to see the influence of the these uh, uh, anti-abortion bills uh, spreading throughout uh, the country, Anna. And I'm just wondering what you're uh, making of this development and, you know, what do you think it means for uh, the struggle for reproductive justice? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was March 23rd that Governor Little of Idaho signed uh, SB 1309 into law, um, which is was making it the first state to adopt the copycat of the Texas law SB 8, um, which relies on ordinary citizens to enforce a uh, ban on abortion after six weeks of pregnancy as a way of getting around court challenges. And I think that's important to like, really point out, as we're saying, this is unconstitutional, right? Um, the Idaho bill, similarly titled the Heartbeat Bill, allows family members of uh, what the legislation calls a, quote, a preborn child, including those of a rapist, to sue uh, the abortion provider and establish a reward um, of at least 20000 plus legal fees. Um, and it allows the lawsuit against providers for up to four years after an abortion. Um, so that's some of the differences with um, Texas SBA. Um, you know, they upped it to, to 20000 um, reward and a family member of a rapist could sue a pregnant woman seeking an abortion. Um, it speaks to the war on women and one could say incentivizes violence and rape um, if they're getting such a reward or a bounty 
Um, and these disturbing policies all signify a larger pursuit to overthrow the landmark 1973 abortion case Roe v. Wade. Um, this wave of legal attacks is occurring at a completely unprecedented rate. Uh, laying the groundwork to completely restrict abortion in just over half of U.S. states. So uh, 26 states are certain or likely to put a total ban on abortion if Roe is overturned. You know, and the uh, bounty kind of uh, aspect of this legislation is not the only concern that the governor who actually uh, supports, said that he supports the pro-life policy in the legislation, but feared the novel civil enforcement mechanism that kind of uh, deputizing private citizens to sue uh, abortion providers um, aspect. He feared that in short order, that would be proven unconstitutional and unwise. Little also raised concerns about the unintended consequences that the legislation might have on victims of sexual assault. How would that reflect in uh, the implementation of this legislation um, if if victims of sexual assault are caught up in uh, this anti-abortion fervor from this law? Yeah, um, so we see, you know, that... Uh women will be left in these, you know, dire situations. And, you know, along with, like, the personhood language in these bills, which intend to confer full legal personhood of fetus at the moment of conception, which would open the door for even more restrictions on the rights of pregnant women. Um, something to keep in mind with Idaho, um, who has now implemented the SB8 copycat law, um, we will unfortunately see... Uh, women and abortion providers um, being left completely defenseless. Um, you know, just like so many um, sexual assault and rape survivors um, against a law that the Supreme Court is also refusing uh, to stop. You know, SB8 has been challenged um, so many times since its effect in September. Um, and this all while, you know, opponents uh, pursue further legal action in lower courts as well. And, you know, the Democratic Party has thrown its hands in the air and President Biden refusing to even mention the crisis, um, much less defend against it. Um, you know, shortly after um, the Women's Health Protection Act was passed, uh, was not passed in February, uh, he had his uh, State of the Union where um, he didn't, you know, defend abortion. And he hasn't even uttered the word abortion since becoming president, actually. Um, and in the event, actually, that Roe is overturned, experts worry that uh, millions of women will be um, left, you know, in even more of a dire position. Um, I live in Illinois, where it's considered a safe haven state, and about 15 other states have passed legislation to preserve abortion rights. Um, and these states could be overrun and could be forced to turn people away. Um, so, you know, like, we really see that, you know, the, the fight isn't over. Um, our hearing over Mississippi's 15-week ban is scheduled for late spring, um, in which the Supreme Court will take another step to decide the fate of Roe. Um, and while its track record doesn't look promising, the Supreme Court may very well end up preserving 
the ruling of it um, ex- and experiences if it experiences enough pressure to do so. Definitely. And I also wanted to touch on um, on a, this issue in Arizona with the Arizona legislator a little earlier this week, um, basically uh, uh, outlawing abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy, which is uh, mirroring um, a similar law in uh, uh, Mississippi. And, you know, uh, like we were saying, it, it just seems like we're seeing a kind of creep of this kind of legislation uh, uh, sort of spread across the country. And like you say, the Democrats seem to have sort of, you know, kind of thrown their hands up uh, about the the situation. And we don't see a lot of pushback from that element. And so, I mean, what do you think this means on in terms of the importance of a a, a movement in the streets to really uh, apply this kind of pressure? Because we see that, you know, the uh, mainstream political formations that are, are supposed dedicated to these kinds of things are just not really showing up. There's like not a it doesn't appear to be like a fighting force within the political mainstream when it comes to the issue of abortion access and reproductive justice and uh, women's liberation in general, because when it gets right down to it, that's what I think this um, whole issue is really connected to. It's a broader issue of women's liberation. And so how do you see the role of uh, a movement in really uh, uh, struggling around this as we don't see uh, that much help coming seemingly um, from inside the halls of power. Yeah, I mean, um, with the expansion of all of these attacks, like we have to have a movement, um, a militant strong movement um, in the streets as we, you know, we see like Roe being attacked and it's been attacked since Roe went into effect in the landmark winning of that. And um, we have to, we have to see that, you know, it, that we have to build a movement and we can't depend on the courts as we see us being constantly challenged and, you know, nothing's happening um, with the, you know, Democrats, um, you know, in, in every level of um, power here. Right. And um, yeah, we see Missouri, um, you know, trying to, um, you know, make uh inducing or performing an abortion um, would become a class A felony punishable up to 30 years in prison. So there's the aspect of criminalizing women um, and looking at like those end goals of, you know, trying to take away bodily autonomy of so many people uh, right now. And, you know, it speaks to healthy state representatives being out of touch with the struggles of working women and so-called pro-life lawmakers um, have never seen the reality of enduring an unplanned pregnancy while in poverty. Um, people across all states must show solidarity and those living under the most extreme restrictions in order to build that collective power. Um, access to health care of all types is essential for collective well-being of our society, so we have to demand it. Yeah, that's definitely true. And and I want to touch on something that you just mentioned, access to health care, because none of the legislators who are pushing these restrictive abortion bills are at the same time pushing any kind of legislation that increases any of the things that would provide the support that people need to uh, eliminate the, the threat that they claim 
is happening. Like they're not pushing for bills to increase access uh, to health care for women. They're not pushing for bills to uh, increase uh, pay for working people. Nothing to improve the quality of life for people that might address some of the the issue that they think or that they claim is happening with this uh, pandemic of abortion, which actually just does not exist. The problem is not, it, it doesn't exist at all. So, I mean, how do people uh, confront the political reality that while there is this uh, uh, war being waged on women, for their reproductive freedom. At the same time, there is not a war being waged by these same people on poverty, lack of health care, lack of quality education for working and poor people, um, that, that there is the moral bankruptcy and the hypocrisy in uh, the motives that these people uh, have for pushing this legislation and doing nothing to actually improve the lives of people at the same time. Yeah, Jackie, what you're mentioning, I think, is why the struggle for abortion rights is for everybody to fight for, right? Not just, you know, women. um, And it's really, I think, when the Women's Health Protection Act didn't pass, you know, that law uh, would have been, that act would have enshrined the law of healthcare providers' ability to offer abortion services prior to fetal viability without restrictions imposed by individual states. Um, and those things would be like requiring like special admitting privileges to providers or imposing waiting periods. Um, it would have protected abortion services um, and preempt many restrictions Republicans passed at the state level, such as requiring ultrasounds or other tests and challenge all the heartbeat bills um, that exist before the fetus is uh medically viable, like Mississippi's 15-week ban, um, and Arizona and Texas's six-week ban, like, like what we previously mentioned. But I think, it, you know, it speaks to all of these social services that people need, right? Um, we, you know, you know, the right is chipping away at Roe, and they have been since it, since it went into effect, and people, um, you know, we can't even get a build back better bill that isn't, you know, like completely gutted. I think, again, that just speaks to, um, you know, the harms of a large sector of poor working class communities um, that even when they, that Democrats have full control of the legislative and executive branches of the government, um, they've been slow to passing any type of progressive bill. So we have to see these constant attacks um, on abortion rights um, as part of that, um, of, you know, for us to build a movement that, um, you know, can stand up to and will stand up to, um, you know, the countless restrictions um, most notably the Hyde Amendment, um, which prohibits federal funding for abortion procedures, right? Um, so, you know, we have to we have to continue to, you know, stop the charade of attacking women and other childbearers of once and for all. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Anna, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary.
any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the impact of COVID-19 on South Korea. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Jia Hong from the group Nodutol for Korean Community Development. Jia, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And Jia, it's being reported that one in five people in South Korea have had uh, COVID-19, have contracted the uh, coronavirus. And um, it seems that uh, towards the beginning of the pandemic, uh, South Korea seemed to have things uh, pretty well in hand. But there's been uh, a sort of serious rise uh, in cases uh, here recently with sometimes daily numbers reaching the, the hundreds of thousands. And I was hoping you could help us understand, you know, just what is happening in South Korea as it concerns the coronavirus and why have things escalated uh, in this way? Yeah, thanks for raising this. It's been really um, rising cases, rising deaths in the past few months. So I, I would attribute it to a f- number of things. But uh, back in last November, Uh, South Korea announced its new policy regarding COVID-19, calling it the living with COVID-19, as opposed to previously when they had policies that were trying to contain the virus. And so that, alongside the new Omicron variant and other variants, um, has really seen made the country see a spike in cases. Actually, last Thursday, it was at over 600,000 cases, and um, I believe the death count is also rising. So I think it's it's a combination of things, the new variants that are, um, but also with the policies where they are lifting a lot of restrictions, such as quarantine, um, that were seen to be effective previously. So um, yeah, those are those are the reasons that I see. Yeah, and in this uh, living with COVID policy, it, it seems like there is a a kind of morbid resignation that, you know, everyone is just going to catch the virus, so you might as well go ahead and catch it anyway and get it over with. And we're seeing that here in the U.S. and have been for a while, uh, but with policy decisions that look a little bit different. But one particular case that... that I, I guess really shocked me was a, a, a South Korean doctor who basically said that, you know, people who have not contracted COVID don't have any friends. Like that is the reason they have not contracted COVID. And while on the face of it, it seems like that's a ridiculous thing for a medical professional to say, do you feel that that statement is kind of indicative of the resignation of the medical community and and the political community in uh, Korea to just resign themselves to everyone is going to catch the virus. And now, you know, we have to find ways to blame people uh, for, you know, literally not catching the virus and claiming that there's something wrong with them. And in the process of trying to normalize COVID still being a problem. Mm, wow, that's a really shocking thing to hear. I hadn't heard that previously. Um, 
a doctor would say that, but I think you're absolutely right. The various um, political uh, tendencies have pointed towards uh, normalizing the virus and normalizing contracting it and instituting policies that would make one feel like, oh, well, there's nothing for me to do as an individual. And I think that's really pronounced in how workers have been dealing with the effects of lifting a lot of, you know, lifting quarantine measures um, and lifting tracing measures, because um, a lot of workers are kind of afraid to get tested. And um, some workers, you know, when there are so many people out with COVID, um, there was one article that mentioned a worker said, you know, I'm being overworked because everyone else is out with COVID. I would rather just get COVID. And that's not the fault of the individual. It's the fault of these policies and the politicians that are implementing um, policies that are, you know, making people overworked and not providing any any kind of um, aid and any kind of uh, respite. And so people are being pushed into these scenarios where they see no alternative. Um, and so, yeah, I would say that there is this kind of resignation by some, though not by all. I will say that, um, you know, there are some in the medical community and there are some workers who are, you know, calling out these policies and saying this is not this is not going to protect us um, and this is only going to harm the more vulnerable populations. Uh, I think that's true for the U.S. as well. And I really see South Korea's steps as in line with what the U.S. has been doing. Yeah, and that's what's been sort of striking to me. And maybe it shouldn't be considering the kind of relationship we know um, South Korea to to have with Washington. But, I mean, to see it uh, seemingly anyway sort of follow the steps of the U.S. Uh, on the uh, coronavirus issue is pretty worrisome considering how horribly things have been uh, mismanaged here, even in the U.S. And one thing that we've seen um, on the issue of workers, and this was uh, something else I wanted to uh, touch on, Gio, was the impact that this is having on workers in South Korea. It's just like how, you know, gig workers and, and other workers in the U.S. Uh, have not really seen a, a lot of uh, benefits or help or support from the corporations that they work for uh, throughout this pandemic, while some of these same corporations are uh, making record profits. And I feel like that's the case as well in South Korea with companies like uh, Coupang and things like this. And so the conditions of the pandemic have been great for business, but have been uh, pretty bad for workers who, who actually have to, you know, give their labor to keep things moving in a time of crisis. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, the gig economy is um, pretty much the same situation as it is in the U.S., where Coupang is a e-commerce uh, company that has really grown in popularity and in profits through uh, throughout the pandemic. Uh, as people become more reliant on deliveries, but uh, workers for these companies are dying from exhaustion. There have been many cases of people dying from exhaustion. Um, these workers are only often only paid for the actual work of delivery and not paid for the hours that they spend loading their trucks and organizing, you know, their routes and things like that. And so. Uh, they lack employee protections, um, just like here in the U.S. Um, 
and they're really suffering. I, I'd also want to add that these recent um, policies that have been lifted, so the fact that workers or that people don't have to quarantine anymore when they're living with people who have contracted the virus, this is um, causing a lot of issues for employees where employees are, many of them are being forced to use their sick uh, to use their uh, sorry, personal days or vacation days instead of being granted sick leave or paid leave. Um, only about 60% of workers with coronavirus were granted uh, paid leave or sick leave. And so many workers are afraid to test positive because they know that they'll have to use their personal days or they're worried of being fired for having COVID. Um, so it's just creating a lot of... Um, of toxic work environments and uh, even worsening the spread of COVID well, because while workers are afraid to test positive, they may have the virus that may be spreading it unknowingly. Yeah, and of course, you know, as we're seeing in this country, I'm sure it is true in uh, South Korea that all of this takes an emotional, mental toll on people. Have you seen uh, an increase in the need for mental health services for people as this uh, pandemic uh, goes on, particularly in light of the uh, elections that I'm sure have given uh, people a lot more uh, to worry about, you, you know, considering that they're probably not going to get as much support from workers. Uh, the workers aren't as they certainly need. Are you seeing the mental health aspect of this pandemic wearing on people and the need for uh, that kind of health care increasing as these uh, restrictions are lifted and the pandemic worsens again? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think probably the, you know, the exhaustion of just living through this pandemic is uh, causing a lot of splits among the population. I don't have the specific information about, you know, calls for more mental health support, but I do think that part of the exhaustion from the pandemic is causing many people to want to return to a quote-unquote normal. Um, and we've seen, you know, for example, small businesses that are losing in profits that are calling for some restrictions to be lifted. Um, that's not necessarily you know, going to solve COVID and that's not necessarily going to solve um, the issues that come with the pandemic, but that is kind of where I think many people are headed towards. Um, in terms of specifically about, you know, how people, you know, are suffering and may need more support for mental health, um, I, I don't know specifically like what calls will be made nationally for mental health institutions, but for example, we know that the new president-elect Yoon is has called on um, getting rid of a lot of national institutes that do do make an impact for daily people. So, for example, he's uh, called to abolish the gender equality ministry, which provides aid to uh, single mothers and other women that are kind of in various different situations. So I wouldn't be surprised if he's also calling for um, other, you know, institutions that support the people. And I'd be curious to see, you know, how the Korean people 
uh, respond to this and what they'll be calling for going forward. Yeah, and that was going to be my next question to Gia about how does this sort of factor into the overall social and political situation in South Korea? Of course, recent election of uh, conservative uh, Yoon Suk-yeol, who, as you just pointed out, has, uh, you know, I think been pretty vocal about wanting to, you know, uh, dismantle some some pretty uh, important institutions there. Because I know here in the U.S., the uh, coronavirus has only just, you know, exacerbated a kind of uh, social and political rot that had set in in the U.S. And I'm just wondering how you situate the COVID situation in uh, South Korea with the sort of overarching uh, uh, political environment there. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, people are really disillusioned and that's in part because of COVID. That's in part because of the uh, liberal government that where people weren't really seeing um, changes, right? When, when Jane came in after the candlelight movement where um, the previous conservative president had been ousted and he came in full of promises. He came in with um, a promise to help the workers and really workers haven't really seen the benefits or the, the promises that he had given. And I think there's a serious disillusionment with the, with the Liberal Party and liberal politics in general. And, um, and then on top of that, COVID has been really exacerbating as well. I think you're right in comparing it to the U.S. situation. Um, and I would attribute both of those things to the election um, where con- the new conservative, uh, Yoon Zagar, just won, where he's been very vocal about changing the status quo um, not necessarily, you know, in my opinion, for the better, but I think it, it comes from a feeling of whatever we have now is not working and, you know, COVID is exacerbating the situation as well. So, yeah, the political climate, it's uh, it's an interesting time. I think we have to be uh, aware and just keep, keep an eye out for what's going on in Korea. I think it'll have really big impacts for Asia in general and the world, too. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Gia, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moved to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Friday, which means it's time for another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle with Nate Wallace, co-host of The Red Spin Sports Podcast. Nate, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Sean. How's it going? Glad to be back. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, Nate, the professional basketball player Ennis Cantor Freedom um, has recently been claiming that he's been uh, blacklisted from the NBA uh, uh, due to his opinions on China. And I'm wondering sort of what you're thinking uh, about this and the league's response to uh, Mr. Freedom here. Yeah, so, I mean, Mr. Freedom, just to be clear, formerly Anis Cantor, um, has been a guy that's just really 
taking a trajectory that's uh, kind of fascinating to trace here because he comes from that movement in Turkey that is uh, openly pro-Zionist, um, that's very anti-Erdogan. Uh, uh, he's uh, been, you know, I mean, essentially he's made a big deal and kind of, you know, acted like sort of his bona fides are the fact that Erdogan wants him dead. He can never go back to Turkey. And um, they, but more and more in recent years, especially the last couple of years, you start noticing him going on, you know, more and more media appearances and, being sort of like the uh, an official voice, like, you know, like this is, you know, in the era where, you know, post Colin Kaepernick and athlete activism was, you know, coming from a place that was challenging authority. Um, and his freedom was sort of like the, the foil to that, at least in the establishment's mind, just, he literally just goes on and he parrots whatever establishment position is sort of one that they want him to parrot. And really when it comes to China, it's like been kind of the most comical. I mean, he's like gone on about, You'll never talk about like Parchman Prison in Mississippi or Angola in Louisiana. Talk about the slave labor of like you know, you know penal systems here in the U.S. Uh, but he will talk all day long about you know Black Lives Matter disrespects like you know the United States, which is the the beacon of freedom around the world. He'll go on and on about you know forced Uyghur um, labor and Chinese concentration camps and free Hong Kong and every sort of buzzword slogan that sort of is propagated out of Washington and the, by the Washington blob is something that you just hear him just start to parrot. And it just, so then now he's able to of course with the New York times, giving him a, uh, you know, this platform and this big article that drops today, designating him this, uh, as this like, you know, hero who's being blacklisted from the NBA. Well, in fairness, like it wouldn't be that unlike what the NFL's done to Colin Kaepernick, um, Kaepernick hasn't just directly gone after like the NFL's like, uh, you know, business relationships, like, uh, you know, with, with sponsors and whatnot, and just relentlessly gone on about, um, you know, antagonizing, which you know, he could do. And some say, I mean, he, he's critical, he's critical of like, you know, aspects of the NFL and racism within the NFL. But this, this is different. This is like a guy who it'd be like in any, think of any in the context of the U S like if you're in any company, you work in any company, you openly go out and just like, you know, constantly spew about like, stuff about like how this company it's like, what if I had a job at Lockheed Martin? Not that I'd want a job at Lockheed Martin. And all I do is just sit there and use a platform that has a, a, a great number of followers. I'm an NBA player and just talk about the fact that they're war criminals and they're murderers and they're merchants of death. All right. They are. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be working there very long. So that for him to act surprised when, as Adam Silver says in the business insider piece that like, led up to the New York times piece, he goes, NBA, NBA commissioner, Adam Silver, virtually every major U.S. company does business in China, Silver told the New York Times in a report published Thursday. So then the question becomes, he said, why is the NBA being singled out as the one company that should now boycott China? He added, it's very difficult for the league to practice foreign policy. I mean, forgive me for sounding like a shill for Adam Silver, but I think that sounds like a very reasonable quote. And honestly, like, what is the NBA supposed to do? There's like Chinese fans are adore the National Basketball Association, love American basketball. Um, and you have this guy who's a marginal player um, making all this noise. I mean, he's nowhere near if you're trying to make an analogy to Colin Kaepernick's level. I mean, Kaepernick was a starting quarterback who took his team to a Super Bowl, all right, even if, like, he wasn't maybe in the top three, four, five quarterbacks in the league. I mean, this guy is a, is a marginal player. And, of course, teams aren't going to want this baggage, and they're not going to want to continue – continuously have to deal with like this player antagonizing the largest market for their game in the world. So that's kind of where we are right now. He's no hero in my book. I mean, I can't say I feel bad for him because I, I don't, that's why I can't say that. So 
mean, you know, politics is also showing up in the sports world, uh, not just in regard to China, but also in regard to Russia, Nate, because now there are more uh, uh, retractions of uh, athletes from events because of their uh, athletes being banned, uh, Russian athletes being banned. So what is the latest on Russian double Olympic champion Evgeny Ryolov being uh, withdrawn from the swimming championship? Yeah, Ryolov basically withdrew from this year's competition in Hungary in support and solidarity with the ban- you know, the Russian athletes that have been banned. Um, you know, he's like one gold and 100, 200 meter backstroke event last year's Tokyo Olympics. Um, and he's lost his sponsorship deal with the Speedo. Um, and that was after attending a rally, you know, this past week, um, hosted by President Putin in, in Moscow. So, you know, he wrote on Instagram and I'll quote, in support of Russian Paralympians, in support of all Russian athletes who have been removed from international competitions, competitions i refuse to go to the world championship this summer he wrote on instagram so he goes i believe that losing competition is losing the development of sport as sad as it may sound sport cannot move without decent competition um and it just for context the governing body that governs swimming internationally is called fina f-i-n-a and they uh they have banned all russian and belarus athletes um and it's also, we go back to the context of the Olympics and the Sochi uh, 2014 doping scandal that led to all Russian athletes um, having to you know, compete under the, uh, uh, the Russian Olympic Committee uh, banner, not being able to, to represent their country um, because of uh, you know, the widespread, they say, state-sponsored doping that Russia does that is uniquely different um, according to the, you know, mainly Western authorities. Um, from what other countries do. So you have this, and also in the context of of, uh, of Medvedev, uh, who's a superstar tennis player, and being you know essentially not able to play at Wimbledon this year. Um, and that doesn't look like it's going to change unless he publicly denounces Vladimir Putin. We've already talked about um, uh, uh, you know um, Alex Ovechkin from the Washington Capitals of the NHL, and the sort of the, cry, the cries for him to denounce Putin uh, to denounce what Russia is doing. And it just do so without any context, right? We can't talk about the Azov Battalion. I'm sure y'all watch the, you know, see the news where, unironically, CNN just runs with like Azov Battalion footage, you know, uh, Mariupol, and, the, and you have this, you know, this just total uncritical analysis analysis of what they are, what right sector is, um, of who the parties that are. Um, and, and look, and like even if they are like the you know the Western mainstream press likes to say like a minority of like Ukrainian parliament, they'll just take that at face value. It doesn't require a majority for a, for a country to have uh, you know Nazi sentiments. So you know the Nazis were a majority, right? And then they you know, took power. It, it, stuff doesn't work like that. And and the, the deny the, the very real reality of that, and then just demand to go back to the sports angle that these athletes with no context immediately just denounce their country when they're in an existential moment, whatever you feel about like the decision that was made for this incursion to happen and whether it was the right thing or wrong thing to do, um, there was certainly a whole prehistory that had been building up there. Um, if you just want to start at 2014, but I think it even goes way beyond that. Um, in that referring to the Maidan coup. So I think that it's, you know, I don't expect Russian athletes to do that. And it should be the fact they don't do it. Shouldn't it just be chalked up to they're afraid of repression and afraid of Putin and afraid of like you know speaking out against 
the most tyrannical dictator that you know now is being, of course, every every so how often this happened. You're comparing the latest, you know, number one U.S. designated enemy as the next Hitler. I mean, I think I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they did that with Saddam Hussein even at some point. So, um, you know, kind of the Hitler analogies are, are kind of wearing thin. And I don't think you're going to see many more Russian athletes defect. I mean, Maria Sharapova, another tennis player, has been criticized, and she's hardly like a, a big Putin uh, you know, staunch supporter. But she hasn't, you know, for not coming out and explicitly denouncing things, you know, enough. I mean, it just amazes me that we haven't been as Americans like our athletes haven't been forced to like denunciate, you know, the Iraq War, Abu Ghraib, you know, Guantanamo, um, the just the endless number of like, uh, you know, human rights abuses and atrocities, but. uh it seems like it's kind of a one-sided rule. Yeah, definitely. And you're right. I mean, we do, you know, hear the same thing about, uh, you know, Saddam Hussein or Bashar al-Assad or, or Muammar Gaddafi. I mean, whoever is sort of the uh, boogeyman of the day has to uh, uh, have that. And I mean, you know, uh, certainly people can, you know, critique a Russia's invasion of Ukraine uh, uh, if they like. That's understandable. But I mean, to then take that as comparing Vladimir Putin with an actual genocide a uh, genocide heir, a uh, genocidal maniac like uh, uh, Adolf Hitler is, I mean, it's not only absurd, I actually think it's, I mean, offensive to people who are actually affected by that kind of mass uh, ethnic violence in a number of ways. But none of that seems to matter. Like you say, the context, it seems illegal to uh, bring in that kind of context. And I feel like what we're seeing, this kind of uh I don't know what you call it, uh, like like its own kind of cultural war against like all things Russian seems to me, Nate, to be a part of the kind of collective punishment that American people feel are justified because of their anger at uh, Vladimir Putin and uh, the mm-hmm. Russian government in general, of course, mostly ginned up by the corporate owned media and uh, uh, the U.S. government. And so out of anger uh, towards Putin and the Kremlin, Americans uh, uh, have basically been conditioned to feel that each and every Russian uh, then has to pay. I mean, I think even even Anthony Blinken said this, even admitted as much when he was talking about um, the impact of sanctions. And so since these sanctions will overwhelmingly impact the Russian people and more than likely not Putin or any of these other Russian officials, well, the American people, uh, uh, in order to basically have their consciousness um, uh, uh, warped into supporting the U.S.'s warlike stance towards Russia, then has to be made to feel okay to attacking each and every Russian person and that isn't sort of um, sufficiently anti-Putin or whatever. And so that's sort of the uh, uh, the moment that we are in uh, politically and socially here in the United States, Nate, uh, to where, you know, it seems like there has to be an all-out campaign against all things Russian in order to justify a U.S. Uh, imperialist desire. Yeah, you can't read Leo, Leo Tolstoy anymore unless you, you're a suspect, right? You can't do that. You can't read any number of Russians. You can't listen to uh, the Nutcracker anymore. That, that'd be, oh, might be suspect. Michael McFall, let's not forget that you know, they wiped it off Rachel Maddow's show. I mean, he creates the climate for this kind of stuff by going on there and claiming that Hitler never used any chemical weapons against, quote, his own people, against Germans. Well, I mean, I think there's some like LGBTQ and leftist Germans that uh, I can differ about that point, but uh, that's the kind of climate. Those are the people that are given platforms that then it all spills over and not to, you know, borrow from a terrible U S 
foreign policy term from the Vietnam era, but it does cause a domino effect in our culture of then people, um, you know, absorbing that. And then you just have such a mass wave of that coming in that you start to question your own sanity. Because if you're, you know, challenging, quote, the experts, the authorities, right, that are from the, from every corner sort of a mainstream media, you know, the, the old saying that, like, you know, if you think, you know, you're right and everyone else is wrong, you know, it probably means you're crazy. Well, I don't think that's what it means in this case. I think we, we do live in kind of an insane society, especially as it relates to media and information and the control of information. And uh, the fact there's just no repercussions for stuff like that. Michael McFall continues to go around and just say ridiculous, asinine stuff. Um, who's one of the guys that helped ramp up the tensions to get us to one of the, you know, this place where we are now. That is, you know, Obama's ambassador to Russia from the U.S. So uh, I, I found just based on in response to what you said, Sean, like it's important to inject that because it's like that, those are the people that are, are creating this climate that's then leading to people um, like the Russian athletes feeling like that they are, uh, you know, between a rock and a hard place. And there's there's really no good way to deal with it for them. There isn't. And I guess that's the point. They need to be punished, right? They need to be they need to be uh, disciplined collectively, and uh, that's where we are here in U.S. culture. And I guess it helps people on some level. Those who who buy into those narratives, uh, I feel a little little less bad about their own situation, perhaps. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely the case, and and we're seeing, you know, I think the the McCarthyite twenty twenty two era emerging. And, and I have to ask, uh, as I think somebody did on uh, Twitter, has anyone reached out to Maria Sharapova for her comments on uh, what people are calling Putin's war on Ukraine? Or, you know, do we let some athletes pass because, you know, we have placed them in a position of acceptance and, uh, you know, they're out of reach. So, I mean, how do you see the way that some athletes are kind of quietly hiding in the in the background and no one is really uh, uh, taking them to task in the same way that a lot of other athletes are really being condemned in the same moment. Yeah. So, I mean, on sportsillustrated.com or si.com, there's a mailbag question from, I guess, a reader. Uh, Has anyone reached out to Maria Sharapova for comments on Putin's war on Ukraine? Or are we going to we're going to let her take a pass on this question? To be honest, there's a lot to unpack here. So the, the reporter says, I posed this, got no response from the Sharapova camp. Now in parentheses, do note, too, that Sharapova shares an agent with Lina, who's silent on Peng Shui, Peng Shui, uh, who, you know, that whole stand, you know, scandal with the, you know, the Chinese government was trying to make her disappear. Then there wasn't really evidence for that, you know was something that was a big deal um, amongst the uh, the Hawks in the lead-up to the Beijing Olympics in particular. Um, but goes on to say, um, you know, it doesn't go unnoticed, right? The reporter says it's a balance act, right? On the one hand, I think we need to go wide berth here without knowing the pressures and risks that come with taking a stand, especially a stand that repudiates Putin. Like, so the idea like, oh, we should feel bad for, you know, maybe a little bit because, you know, we don't know maybe the full implications of that. Let's just preface that. But then let's continue to say, but it's also fair to ask Sharapova for comment. And I think it's, uh, it's well, I mean, one thing to say comment on what's happening, that's for a comment, but that's not what's being asked for. What's being asked for is like, will you completely repudiate the leadership of your own country? Um, and, it, you know, and, of course, the SI people say, and I think it's fair to suggest that she is singer, singularly well positioned to speak out. All right. You will note that she did announce she was donating to Save the Children, 
wow. So that, I guess that's what she should, that should be the example, right? Just donate to some you know, corporate NGO charities. Um, and, you know, that's the only way you maybe weasel out of, you know, not repudiating Putin explicitly, I guess. Um, that That's sort of like the way a lot of sports fans seem to be thinking. I was reading Twitter threads and different you know, kind of comments about Sharapova. And this is, uh, I think, pretty representative of like the way, you know, the American sports journalists um, kind of feel about how she should be taken on. We all, we understand it's hard. We know it's, it's, it might be a challenge, but you know, are you really going to you know put your money where your mouth is here? And you, know, you donated to save the children. So why can't you repudiate Putin? Right. It's like, I mean, it's just, just insane logic. I mean, and that's, uh, but we're living in pretty insane times. Yeah, it's like people are expected to, you know, to give like a loyalty oath when they're asked this question. And I mean, can you imagine if American athletes or American entertainers or some emissaries of the United States were made to um, uh, uh, give account or take a stance on the innumerable crimes that the U.S. Uh, has engaged in throughout history, uh, both recently and in the past? I mean, my God, they wouldn't be able to, to go anywhere. And so this this uh, incredible hypocrisy and double standard is a, a pretty wild to watch unfold, Nate. But I mean, to me, it's a part of what helps stimulate the kind of fog of war moment that we're in right now. It's like, you know, you obscure a lot of the, the truth. You completely ignore and remove the context. And not only that, if a person dares to actually raise relevant context, they're um, accused of deflecting from the fact that there's a war going on. So there are all these tactics, you know, some subtle, some implicit, some explicit. That's all about, you know, inventing reality and manufacturing consent uh, for the U.S. people to support uh, yet another war and one that could likely have, you know, impacts on humanity itself. And as such, we, we have to resist that on a number of levels. But we thank you so much, as always, Nate, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Friday, March 25th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show, because at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, you will be able to give us a call at 202-521-1320. That's Two zero two five two one one three two zero. Our operators are standing by. You can also listen and download our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. 
We're also live uh, streaming on Rumble at rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. But however you get in contact with us or engage with the show, we really appreciate it and definitely want to hear from you. We most certainly do. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Dr. Radhika Desai, a professor at the University of Manitoba and director of Geopolitical Economy Research Group. Dr. Desai, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Sean and Jackie. Absolutely. And Dr. Desai, I wanted to begin today by talking about um, uh, an aspect of the Ukraine war that that I feel like is being somewhat uh, underplayed. And that's this issue of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky banning uh, uh, at least 11 uh, opposition parties in Ukraine, and this includes uh, the opposition Platform for Life, a party that came in second in Ukraine's recent elections and uh, currently holds 44 of the 450 seats in the Ukrainian parliament. And, you know, there are different politics within these groups. Some of them are left-leaning. I think just about all of them, um, the justification for banning them are their supposed uh, uh, ties to Russia. And, I mean, although it's gotten some coverage on mainstream mainstream platforms, at least I've seen articles on The Hill and and things like that about it, I I feel as if we're not really seeing a ton of um, uh, uh, analysis of it or really a lot of attention put on that. And a part of me wonders if it may be due to how it it kind of problematizes this binary that at least we here in the United States and I'd imagine Canada, you know, is being perpetrated as well as like Russia is as, you know, Ukraine good, Russia bad. And in saying that, of course, doesn't uh, justify the the Russian uh, invasion, but it's a very sort of narrow and uncritical and shallow view, to say the very least, of the whole situation that I think we're seeing in North America here, Doctor. And so I'm not only curious your thoughts about that um, development in general, but I mean, what do you think it says about the the narrative around the Ukraine war that is being pushed so hard in this part of the world? You, you, you got it in one. Like, the thing is that the West, the narrative that the West is launching is, Ukraine is democratic. Russia is autocratic. We must defend Ukraine because it's democratic. We must attack Russia because it's autocratic. And this is the whole narrative that breaks down if you made much of the news that Zelensky has banned all these parties. So not only has he banned all these parties, there's more to it. There are actually the fascist parties like Svoboda are still part of his coalition. You know, if you look on YouTube, for example, I just happened to be looking the other day. There are at least, there are are many, many videos from mainstream news media like BBC Newsnight and Time magazine, which have demonstrated, which show how great the danger of fascism in Ukraine is. These, These are as recent as a year or two ago. Right. And now nobody talks about this. Nobody talks about uh, about fascism in Ukraine. The fact that it is part of the government, the fact that by many reports it has infiltrated the army. Uh, So so 
So on the one hand, nobody is reporting the banning of the center-left and left-wing parties. On the other hand, nobody is talking about the fascists because that would be so inconvenient for the narrative that Ukraine is democratic. That's why we are fighting for it. That's why we are our uh, arms industry are making money uh, uh, hand over. Uh, you know, uh, making money uh, uh, in orders of money, you know, creating arms and selling arms to the to the Ukrainians and so on. And uh, of course, the fact that uh, Russia has to be totally delegitimized. Putin has it. I mean, there are so many people who have interviewed with total credulity who have compared him to Hitler. It's absolutely crazy. And so now this is the to, to report this is inconvenient for the dominant narrative. And, you know, it, it's insane that we are in a moment of time, and, and I think this is an incredibly important moment in history in this country where not only is the banning of political parties in Ukraine not being reported, but the establishment of basically a unified uh, state-run media outlet that is only going to provide uh, of the approved narrative that comes out of Kiev and all privately owned media outlets are in effect also banned under uh, martial law in Ukraine. And this is, this is you know, the, the hero, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky doing this. This is the, the person who people in this country, and I'm sure in, in other Western countries that are getting the same uh, very slanted, uh, biased narrative are saying that, you know, Zelensky can't possibly have fascists in his coalition because he is himself Jewish. So, I, you know, Dr. Desai, this fits my understanding of fascism. So what would you say to people who would respond to this news, these facts, because they are facts, that Opposition parties have been uh, banned. Left opposition parties have been banned, while the fascist parties are still very much uh, able to operate. Media has been not only controlled, but opposition and dissenting voices have been silenced. And there is now a state, a single state approved media outlet. When people say, well, Zelensky can't be fascist because he is a, he is Jewish. What do you say to that? Well, you know, this is a really critically important question because, you know, the fact of the matter is that, of course, it's absolutely true that under Nazism in particular, uh, the particular group that was targeted, well, one, the, the major particular group that was targeted was Jewish people, and we must never forget that. And th that's critically important. But there were also other groups that were targeted, the Roma, gay people, communists, etc. So that's the first thing we have to remember. And they also perished in the concentration camps of um, uh, of the um, uh, of Nazi Germany. Now, the second thing one has to realize is that in order to create a fascism, certainly one critical element of fascism is to create a despised minority. Now, in depending on the situation, you can have fascisms. That are that do not target Jewish people per se. They may and they may target Jewish people too, but they may not. They may all or they may in addition target other people. In this case, if you look at some of the vile uh, statements coming out of uh, Ukraine right now about Russians, it is bone chilling. They are being dehumanized like never before. Russians are not people. 
they, I have I have heard reports saying that. You know, of course, in the, this is reported in the Western media, and the Western media takes it as simply, oh, people are so upset about the war, they are allowed to say these things. But they're dehumanizing Russian people. They're saying the Russian people are not people, they don't have any sense of culture, they're going out and killing women and children deliberately, blah, blah, etc. So that that's... That's that, that's so. One, what one has to point out is that what fascism needs is a scapegoat. It doesn't matter at some level who the scapegoat is, and this will depend on from situation to situation. So, while in the uh, while in the case of Nazi Germany, Jewish people were absolutely central. Uh, today, things are considerably more complicated. This is not to say that there is not anti-Semitism in Ukraine either, as in most of Europe, there is a fair bit of anti-Semitism there as well, so one has to be careful of that. But it does not have to be that. That's one of the things I would say. And I would say one other thing, which is, you know, Earlier, you know, you, you guys said that, you know, there the, the are being these parties that have been banned. They have been banned on the grounds of being uh, pro-Russian or having connections with Russia. Basically, in the present context, if you, are, if, if you believe that you, the, the future of Ukraine, a good future of Ukraine for Ukraine and its people lies in observing the Minsk Accord, respecting the autonomy of the Donbass people, uh, uh, restoring Russian language, etc. Then of course, and which would be the logical thing to do, basically, if this, if there is a peaceful settlement to this conflict, which one desperately hopes there is, there should have been ages ago. It will involve some version of the Minsk Accords, which means respecting the autonomy of the Donbas peoples and the Lohans people's republics, or incorporating them into a federal Ukraine, respecting the Russian language. All of these things will have to be there, and of course. If you stand for these things, it is so easy to portray you as pro-Russian. So they have, you know, they have all the all the things covered. And you know, one final thing I will say, which is that I am also reading. Interestingly, there was a Mint Press article which talks about how slick their PR campaign is, where this was apparently reported also in the Washington Post. I haven't read the original article. I just was reading the Mint Press piece when you, uh, when just before this interview. So I, I will mention that that they have the Kiev has an extremely slick PR campaign, which actually has been structuring the narrative. And so long as Kiev is doing that, all the rest of the mainstream media have to do is to say, well, we have to take Kiev's word over Moscow's. And, and you know, basically we, we report everything sympathetically that comes out of Kiev and everything that comes out of, out of Moscow has to be looked at with a jaundiced eye. And this is what it seems to be the mainstream media is doing. Yeah, and I'm just sort of curious, and maybe this is an aside, Dr. Desai. I mean, you, you know, you're a professor at the University of Manitoba. I, I'm just curious about the response from the... Canadian government of uh, Justin Trudeau towards the the war in Ukraine. I mean, it seems that oftentimes Canada sort of follows in um, lockstep of the U.S. and the West on these foreign policy issues. But how has the Trudeau government been responding to the war in Ukraine up until this point? Uh, absolutely lockstep. I mean, there are instances where Canadian interests and American interests have not always been working very well together, particularly vis-a-vis, for example, when Trump tore up the NAFTA uh, agreement and so on. But lately, particularly with the Biden administration, particularly with the war over Ukraine, uh, the Trudeau government has been absolutely like a pig in clover, basically. They just love it. They have, uh, they, essentially, they they, they 
they want to pursue a militarist agenda, this also empowers them, enables them to spend more on the Canadian military, which they have always wanted to do, both in order to partake in a wider Western imperialism, as well as occasionally, when necessary, to exert their own little imperialism of their, uh, little imperialisms of their own, whether it is in some Central American country or in Haiti or wherever. So. In, in all of these ways, the Canadian government is absolutely loving it. Two more points quickly. The first is that they have just come up with an, they come to an agreement with the supposedly social democratic party, namely the NDP, in which the NDP has basically promised the, so the, the agreement is that the NDP, because the present liberal, liberal government is a minority government, the NDP has promised to support the minority liberal government till the end of the term, which means that they don't have to worry about their minority status. They can be essentially ram through any legislation they want. And in return for that, the NDP has got a few paltry little social concessions like medical care for those who, sorry, dental care for those who are you know, really poor and a little bit of uh, housing, sorry, but daycare for uh, kids who are really poor, etc., etc. So they will get a few things like that. But in return for this, they are agreeing to support to the hilt increased military expenditure, which if you think about it, a left-wing party ought not to do. So this is really, uh, I mean, Canada, this is a really sad situation. And the final thing I'd like to say is that, you know, uh, people should look up the work of Richard Sanders. He's done a lot of really good work on how Canada has historically run a policy of encouraging immigration from certain groups, from certain uh, reliably right-wing constituencies. And that includes encouraging uh, 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 immigration of of right-wing Ukrainians. So that, you know, in Canada, the Ukrainian community is split between the early migrants who are almost uniformly left wing and the post Second World War migrants who are quite substantially right wing. So there is a and our, our, our deputy prime minister, Christia Freeland, she is a, a descendant of a, of a major supporter of Stefan Bandera, the, 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 the Nazi uh, collaborator, Ukrainian Nazi, I suppose you should say, uh, in the 1940s. And she has never criticized uh, this. And more recently, she was, uh, uh, she was um, photographed uh, at a demonstration in favor of Ukraine holding up uh, ultra-right neo-Nazi Ukrainian insignia. So all of this uh, just gives you an idea of how these things are going down in Canada. And I think this leads me to the question, Dr. Desai, that you point out in your article uh, uh, that was recently published in CGTN, and that is why there is so much enthusiasm for this war going on for as long as it has and and continuing and having it continue rather than for the uh, Western government's push for peace talks. Why are these leaders in the U.S. and Canada and in the uh, NATO-aligned countries, why are they so excited for this war to continue on as it has been? Well, you know, this is really, in many ways, a $64 million question, because practically everywhere, uh, in every media outlet you look at, and generally people seem to think that, you know, this is a war Russia is waging against Ukraine. And my position right from the start has been, 
that this is a war that the West is waging against Russia, a hybrid war that the West has been waging against Russia for a very long time. Uh, it is a particular phase in that war. And in this phase, the war has taken the form of a war over Ukraine. So Ukraine is involved, and this has, you know, you saw last uh, last fall uh, uh, the the beginnings of the drumbeat of war, which took the form of, of the West constantly saying Russia is going to attack Ukraine, Russia is going to attack Ukraine, blah, blah, and so on. And essentially what the West was doing is essentially, uh, on the one hand, uh, encouraging the Ukrainians to constantly provoke, to constantly increase the assault. Remember, this is a civil war in Ukraine. The civil war has been going on since 2014, since the West toppled a popularly elected government of Ukraine in the so-called Maidan revolution or counter-revolution, one should say, because that was the moment at which this uh, new government was foisted, which was not popularly elected and which has subsequently relied on the support of ultra-right neo-Nazi parties. So this uh, civil war has been going on for a long time. So the West en constantly encouraged Ukraine to keep on stepping up the danger to the Donetsk and Luhansk people's republics. Then finally... And, and essentially uh, creating a situation in which Russia was left with no choice but to protect itself by essentially uh, uh, intervening in the in Ukraine in order to 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 as you say demilitarize and denazify. And you know the West keeps also saying you know oh Russia is losing Russia cannot enter Kiev Russia cannot hold cities etc. Russia doesn't want to do any of those things. Russia wants to destroy Ukraine. The, those military capacities that, that enable Ukraine to keep attacking the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics and yes to as far as possible uh, denazify. This is a very complex thing and God knows how much it should it will be uh, uh, achieved, but nevertheless to remove those influences that are keeping up the uh, uh, assault on uh, um, on Donetsk and Lugansk, and eventually they may even uh, 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 attack Russians elsewhere, etc. So, so this is this is the key thing. So you were asking me about why the West is love this war. So why does the West love this, love this war? Well, think about it. First of all, the West has no. Uh, uh, no great stakes here. The West has imposed some sanctions, but quite frankly, even those sanctions have been uh, imposed in a relatively measured way. The U.S. grandly announces that, oh, they are not going to take Russian oil. Well, the U.S. doesn't use that much Russian oil. So how easy is it for the U.S. to say, well, we are going to ban Russian oil? The Germans rely on Russian uh, gas. They are continuing to import that, uh, etc. There are many other such instances. So the sanctions, despite all the grand noises around them, they have been very very carefully calibrated. The, so the, the sanctions are calibrated. The uh, Westerners are not fighting there. They have absolutely refused to get involved in the actual fighting. They're not even going to impose a no-fly zone. And I'm not saying that they should, by the way. I'm just pointing out that there are li very clear limits to their commitment. So this is so that 
the commitment is very limited. They are simply happy to supply arms, but they make profit out of that. So their, their uh, military-industrial complex corporations are very happy. So the, the, essentially, the, the Americans particularly want this conflict to fester because it is profitable for them. It's profitable for their military-industrial complex, and it's also useful in one or two other ways. As long as the conflict goes on, it seems as though, now I'm not saying this is going to be always the case, but for the moment, it seems as though the Europeans, who appear to be showing some signs of independence and autonomy, which the Washington didn't like, like, you know, Germany got Nord Stream 2 pipeline, the British, the Germans, the French, and lots of other Italians were very open to cooperating with China and also with Russia. The Germans and the French had brokered the Minsk Accords, which would have allowed security to be established in Europe because the Ukraine conflict would have been pacified and everybody would have been able to carry on with their own business without the interference of a war. Right now, the, uh, so, so, so the Americans want the war to fester because they seem to have brought the uh, Europeans over on the American side at the great expense of European people generally because they will they are the ones who will be paying high energy prices at a time when their economies are not doing well when so many people are suffering anyway they will be more suffering one is reading about how in britain for example people are having to choose up to up to one fifth of the population is having to choose whether to eat or to heat now consider that this is in one of the richest richest countries in the world so the Americans want the war to fester because as long as, because it has been the main instrument of them bringing the European governments over to their side. But how long this will last, we don't know. I was just listening to a Financial Times podcast in which their very famous foreign affairs correspondent Gideon Rachman was interviewing a senior Finnish diplomat. And this guy, you know, after spewing all the grand rhetoric against Russia, blah, blah, etc., he emphasized a couple of things that I thought were very telling. First of all, he says, well, you know, uh, we have to spend more money on the military and we have to create a, a, a common European military policy. Well, that that is actually a code word we're saying having a military policy that is not necessarily part of uh, subordinated to the United States in NATO. Yeah, right. So so uh, and another thing was as well that, you know, that you we are going to have to uh, see how to calibrate the sanctions and so on and so forth. So in all of these ways, you can tell that it's still a very tense situation. And the Americans want the conflict to fester because that's the only way in which they have brought the Europeans over to their side. So in all these ways, essentially my position is that this war, obviously it's horrible for Ukrainians. It is terrible for Russians. It is terrible for Europeans. It's terrible for ordinary American people. It's going to be terrible for all those countries that have over the last many years become reliant on importing food from Russia because that's going to rocket up in price. It is terrible for all those countries who are importing oil. So the whole, for the whole world, this war is terrible, but for the United States and the corporations that it represents, which are, we can go into that, but for the United States, this is a fantastic war. And that's why they wanted to keep on going. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. 
By any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Dr. Radhika Desai. And, you know, Dr. Desai, we've also been talking on the show here lately within the context of the uh, Ukraine war about how China uh, factors into this as well. Because, I mean, it seems that Washington has uh, uh, made it a point to sort of try to keep China's name in the mix as it regards this uh, conflict, even though, you know, on the surface, China doesn't have anything to do with it. They certainly don't control the politics of Russia and things like that, although obviously they they have a close uh, relationship with Russia, and I believe it's uh, uh, getting closer. But um, I think on a deeper level, it seems that Washington is is very... uh, Uh, purposefully sort of eyeing China also as a part of its, you know, new Cold War sort of strategy. And actually, even before we get to all of that, we have a caller on the line here. Dave, tell us what's on your mind. Hey, happy Friday, y'all. Calling partially out of solidarity with all the censorship that you all are facing. But I did want to get you all's reaction on that old adage that sometimes it takes a Democrat to accomplish what a Republican wishes they could do. Um, like with the Obama presidency, we saw that, you know, he was able to drone people to death in all sorts of countries with, with a swagger, um, whereas Bush may have faced uh, a little bit more criticism. And then I'm thinking about Biden um, doing things that uh, Trump would have liked. Um, Trump would have liked to dismantle all of the testing and just um, have an undercount of all the COVID that's happening. And anecdotally, I think um the subvariant BA2 is on the rise, but with the dismantling of testing, um, I think we're going to see even bigger undercounts. And then secondly, I find it hard to believe that Biden said with a straight face that we should expect to have food shortages. So once again, you know, the backlash towards the Democrat president saying it versus the Republican, um, uh, that backlash is kind of missing. So if you can react to any of that, I appreciate it and stay strong. Well, thanks, Dave. We really appreciate your question and your support, particularly around the food uh, shortage aspect. Uh, Dr. Desai, a good bit there, but your thoughts? Yeah, no, absolutely. First of all, I, I think you 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 have a really interesting, I mean, I hadn't heard that quote before, but it makes a lot of sense that it often takes a Democrat to accomplish what a Republican wishes he could do. Now, historically, especially in the post-Second World War period, you have to remember that it's been the Democrats who have been the war party. And yes, they have been very good at being able to dress up their wars as if they were wars for some noble cause, whether it is defending human rights or democracy or the alleged responsibility to protect, the et cetera, et cetera. So all these rhetorics have been most skillfully uh, woven by, by, the, by Democrats. So, so that's the first thing. Secondly, however, between, at least between, between say, Reagan, uh, all the way up to George Bush Jr., so, you know, Reagan, Bush Sr., Bush Jr., at least, and, you know, it's not like Trump was particularly shy of war, but, you know, especially after the 70s, when the Democrats under Carter in particular seemed to be uh, succumbing to some genuinely progressive forces, the war party temporarily shifted its allegiance uh, to the Republicans, uh, Republicans 
elections under Reagan, although it's also very clear, as we saw with the Clinton administration, that they were soon able to uh, uh, get back the Democrats as well. So uh, today, basically, both the Democrats and the Republicans are the war party. It's just that the Democrats do it in a way that appears to be somehow progressive, when, of course, it's anything but. So the level of hypocrisy uh, uh, associated with the de- Democrats is very great. And I'm also very glad you made the point about the f- food shortages, because basically one the other thing one has to remember is that Western capitalisms generally and American and British style Anglosphere capitalisms in particular are going to do extremely badly with the oncoming inflation or we are already in the inflationary situation. And in this context, basically, what I'm hearing is that these governments, Biden, uh, Johnson, etc., none of these governments are going to make many concessions to make life easy for ordinary people. Uh, Of course, they uh, have simply uh, uh, thrown up their hands at COVID. They don't intend to do anything more about COVID. So basically... The war is going to be a way of saying to people, look, you know, there is this war. We have to fight it for the sake of these noble causes. Meanwhile, you all have to put up with suffering, whether it is the ordinary economic suffering of not having enough to eat, etc., or the extraordinary suffering of falling ill with this deadly disease, etc., etc. So all of these things, the governments are basically asking us to give them the right to prosecute wars and do nothing to address the situation of ordinary people, which one would think is the basis of democracy. So today, uh, you know, if if I were the, uh, you know, the spirit of democracy, I would be, you know, I would have died a thousand deaths because the fact is that uh, in the name of democracy, this war is being waged for a country that is showing itself to be less and less democratic every day. And on the other hand, what a democratic government should do is not being done. Yeah, that's a fact. And and I think this this moment also exposes once again. I, I don't know don't know how many uh times that it needs to be exposed that the Democrat Party and the Republican Party are quite literally two wings of the same evil bird. Uh they are in cahoots about imperialism and war you know, literally making deals across the aisle, because that's what this bipartisanship business is, um, about, you know, who will play the foil this term and who will be, you know, the the baby face next term while they both take our money and throw it into the defense contractors' coffers uh, and so they can, you know, have something to stir up another war with. And, I mean, Sean, I can't help but think about the fact that Volodymyr Zelensky can go to, go to Congress and beg for more money, for more weaponry, for more military aid, but we can't go to Congress and demand, uh, uh, you know, increase in the minimum wage. We we can't we can't demand an extension of the eviction moratorium. Uh, the canceling of student loan debt, like none of the things that that money could be used to improve our lives for, we're not important enough to get an audience like literally in Congress, with Congress, in the seat of Congress. But Volodymyr Zelensky can be the honored guest and receive a standing ovation and beg for more 
weapons while Biden is telling us, oh, by the way, there's going to be a shortage of food and I don't know what to do about it. But hey, sucks to be y'all, Sean. Yeah. And I mean, I think it was yesterday uh, when we were uh, talking with uh, Carlos Martinez. I think he was the one that was pointing about how, you know, um, a Gaddafi didn't have that kind of warm reception or audience with Congress. And neither did, you know, uh, Bashar al-Assad or, you know, uh, anyone that the U.S. deems an enemy. And that's just the thing. They were a part of the sort of um, official enemy states. And uh, meanwhile, Zelensky uh, and the Ukraine government are seen as sympathetic uh, by the U.S. and uh, therefore needs to be portrayed as sympathetic to the American people. So therefore, they uh, have to bring him in and give him a hero's welcome and uh, all of that. And, you know, Dr. Desai, a moment ago, I think you made an important point when you talked about sort of the machinations of uh, U.S. capitalism and the role that uh, that plays in war, the, the role that uh, it will play in uh, the, the global food shortages that uh, Joe Biden is talking about. I mean, think about what that means, you know, in the sense that, you know, you have the, the U.S. president saying blatantly that because of this war, um, there will be, you know, higher gas prices, there will be global hunger, but we're just supposed to grin and bear it. Like, we're, we're supposed to um, accept these uh, issues that have serious impacts on people's lives and their uh, livelihoods, all because it's uh, supposedly part of punishing the bad guy of the day, which, of course, is Vladimir Putin. Although, in truth, Putin and any other um, Russian official will not be the ones to feel the brunt of all this. It'll be the masses of uh, uh, the rank and file people who will feel this. And so I just feel like, Dr., that it's sort of important to understand the role uh, of capitalism in these kinds of imperialist ventures, because it's that um, that that hunger, that that lust, you know, that uh, that that gluttony, if you will, for profit at any and all cost is really what's uh, uh, driving so much of this. I think it's certainly what's driving Washington. And I think, you know, uh, we have to be very careful, speaking of the masses of people, with getting too caught up in that because, you know, we'll mess around and be advocating for something that's actually hurting us. You know what I mean? No, absolutely. Yeah, I, I just want to go back. I, I, you may, or both of you, make really good points, and I particularly wanted to go back to what Jackie said about um, about the bipartisanship. I mean, you, you're absolutely right, Jackie. And I, when you were saying that, I recall that you know there is this uh, a quote that is usually attributed to Julius Nerere, although nobody can find it. So let's just say it's apocryphally attributed to Julius Nerere, because apparently when Julius Nerere was accused by the United States of running a one-party state, you know, when he was trying to achieve some sort of Tanzanian socialism. So he was supposed to have quipped and said that uh, the United States is also a one-party state. But with typical American extravagance, they have two of them. So essentially, we have one party, namely the party of corporate capital, but it has two wings, like you say, the Republican wing and the Democratic wing. So, um, 
Absolutely. And, 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 and I would say that it's not just, you know, this, this party does not just cater to a generic capitalist class. We also have to understand that it caters to the corporate capitalist class. So that means very often these policies hurt small businesses very badly. But uh, the, the favored uh, part of capitalism, the corporate capitalist class. And moreover, it's a corporate capitalist class that has presided over the last four decades over a decaying financialized speculative and predatory capitalism. So if you think about it, there are, I would say there are there are four major sectors of the American economy that are uh, that have any sort of edge. Okay, so the first is, of course, the military industrial complex. The second is the oil and gas mining sector or the mining sector dominated by oil and gas. So the fossil fuel industry. The third is the fire insurance and real estate sector. And finally, the fourth is the uh, uh, the, uh, the the industries like like Silicon Valley, like information and communication technology, and big pharma that rely on intellectual property rights protections in order to make their profits. And if you think about it, all of these rely in some way or another on the U.S. using force and essentially dragooning governments into complying with certain rules that give these sectors an edge. These sectors don't just have an edge because they are competitive. Indeed, you know, in, in this age of uh, uh, all this hype about uh, US ICT being so innovative and competitive, all of that has been rubbished by the fact that Huawei and other such ch Chinese corporations can present such a dangerous technological challenge to them that the United States government starts scrambling to try to ban them. So, uh, in all of these ways, what I'm trying to say is that that the, that the American government is the representative, not just of capitalism, but of a decaying capitalism that cannot make money anymore without force. And that's the key thing one has to remember. Um, further, uh, two, two other points I wanted to make is that the first is that and you see, the United States is waging this war. Like I said, it's it's a war. Uh, mo most broadly, it's a war for to retain the dominance it thinks it should have. It's never succeeded, but it's it's been it's thought for the last century and more that it should be it should dominate the world economy. It's never succeeded, but it keeps trying. So this is what it's trying to achieve. And. As it tries to achieve the means it has now left, which is, you know, already we've seen that the American military, although it is a military that is lavished with most military expenditure anywhere in the world, many times more than anybody else, um, this military is not capable of winning a single victory. We saw what happened in Afghanistan, and before that there were all these wars in which the United States destroyed a lot and created nothing. There was Vietnam, there was Korea, there were all these post-1945 wars, none of them have been won by this military which has on which so much spending has been lavished. So the American people might also ask themselves, why are we doing this? Like, we're not even winning at these, you know, I mean, okay, you, you know, you should object to imperialism, but you can also say, well, what's the point of spending all this money on the military if it can't win? So, 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 so in, in that sense, what the Americans are doing is actually dividing the world. The Americans want to unify the world under their domination, but the only means they have left to them, the, the, uh, the, 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 the essentially the, the imposition of sanctions that puts the viability of the dollar system into question. Um, the imposition of sanctions that only create greater difficulty for American people, like you know, increasing inflation, etc. 
Pursuing the war by these means is not going to bring people over to the American side. It is going to push people over into the Chinese side. They have already put, pushed Russia. Russia was already moving over to China. Now Russia is going to move even more quickly into the uh, Chinese sphere of influence. And this is not because China wants to be some sort of hegemon. It's because China offers a set of economic relations, trade relations, investment relations that can be designed by China and any country it partners with for mutual benefit. So long as something like this is available, this is always going to be more attractive than what the U.S. offers, which is economic subordination to the United States and its corporations. So in this context, what the U.S. is doing is rather than creating a world, a unified world under U.S. domination, it is dividing the world into a shrinking group of people who will remain within the American ambit and an ever-widening uh, group of countries that is going to be uh, to going towards um, uh, towards uh, the other side, namely China, China. And if you know, if Russia is integrated into this, actually that part, uh, uh, that block, so to speak, we're back to talking about blocks. That block of the world economy will be tremendously powerful because Russia has what, Russia and China are complementary in that respect. Russia has the resources, and China has. Uh, 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 the, 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 the human resources, shall we say. I mean, Russia's human resources are also very high quality, by the way. You know, they're highly educated people uh, in Russia today. So, uh, so, and that, that was the, that was the, that there was a thing about the, the what what U.S. sanctions are doing. And one final thing, you mentioned Zelensky's being lionized. The fact of the matter was that this has all been a complete PR production, which is you know systematically generated, portraying Zelensky as a hero. Before the war started, Zelensky was a failure. Zelensky was seemed to be unable to. Uh, 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 bring peace in the east of the of the country. He seemed to be more a creature of the oligarchs that he had agreed to, uh, who he had campaigned on contesting the power of. He uh, uh, was not able to run the economy very well. So on all these counts, I mean, if you remember, Zelensky was elected in order to uh, 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 reduce corruption and oligarchical influence, um, implement the Minsk Accords, pursue better relations with Russia. He has actually ended up achieving the opposite. No wonder he was unpopular. Now we are being told that he, he is once again popular, but I would not believe that. Uh, 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 even obviously in a, in, a, in a war situation, there is a certain rallying of support. But despite that, I would not necessarily believe that. And especially given that he has had to ban these parties, which means that he has, he's having to silence opposition. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 
0252113220. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Dr. Radica Desai is here. And Dr. Desai, I wanted to uh, dig a little deeper if we could into how you see China uh, uh, factoring into this, because we've been discussing this on the show as well. And uh, particularly when we see, even before uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, how uh, the U.S. was operating, you know, vis-a-vis Taiwan and uh, trying to, you know, use that seemingly to try to needle uh, uh, China as part of this new Cold War strategy. And I don't know how relevant uh, you think that aspect of things may be, but, you know, it just seems that uh, the U.S. uh, slowly but surely wants to, uh, you know, get into a conflict with, you know, both Russia and China, as these are the two countries, the two governments that uh, Washington sees as its main rivals. And so, I mean, how do you see all of that uh, uh, factoring in here in in terms of the geopolitical calculus of the United States? Right. So the United States obviously sees this as an opportunity to divide China from Russia because, you know, the policies of U.S. administrations over the last many years, you know, remember, we since the pandemic and since the Trump administration, we have been talking about a new Cold War against China. But before that, the new Cold War against Russia had already been launched in 2014. So this kind of treatment on the by the United States, which it can't help because that is the only way they can secure the interests of the corporate. I mentioned. So now what is happening is they were they have been drawing closer together. As you will remember, during the Beijing Olympics recently, President Putin uh, traveled to China. There they issued an very exceptionally long 5,000-word document that underlined the importance of the China-Russia partnership, saying that it was a limitless partnership. This is quite unprecedented. And it is very clear that from the beginning, uh, because, you know, you, people knew that something like this may happen. So it seems as though China and Russia had, a, uh, had created a relatively deep understanding among themselves about how to approach this. So, and they, and, and as you see, China has essentially absolutely refused to criticize or sanction Russia. It says, uh, it has uh, pointed out that Russia's legitimate security interests have not been taken account of by the West, and uh, it, can, it has been supporting Russia in a number of different ways, including uh, in, in order to counter the financial and other sanctions that have been imposed on Russia. All of this is going to bring China and Russia even faster, even closer together, much faster than anticipated. And the, all the United States can do in this context is to try to pretend as though somehow China is not taking the side of Russia. China ideally doesn't want to take anybody's side. China would wish that the Americans would start behaving in a rational fashion. Unfortunately, the American government is not rational. It is uh, bound to pursue the interests of corporations that are not even good for America, let alone the rest of the world. But nevertheless, that's who it is. So as long as the present situation persists, China is not going to be acting in, fa- in you know, favorably vis-a-vis the United States. And it is going to act in a way that is clearly uh, leaning towards Russia because it sees Russia as the wrong party. And it also realizes a couple of other things. If the United States manages to have its way uh, with Russia uh, over Ukraine, uh, that is to say, essentially either keep the Ukrainian uh, 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 conflict festering or 
do further damage to Russia, the United States will use this as a way of continuing to threaten China vis-a-vis Taiwan. It may even uh, start to deviate from the one China policy, which today it at least officially accepts, even though for the last many years, decades even, it has been whittling away at the commitment, trying to ease, wiggle out of it, etc. But remember that when Nixon went to China, one of the key things was that they agreed that, they, that, that the Americans would accept the one China policy, which means accepting that while it may operate very autonomously right now, Taiwan is a province of China. So uh, the United States accepts this at least openly, and now the United States will see it as an opportunity to break that commitment. So that's so 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 China is aware of that, and finally China is aware of a third thing, which I think is very important. What China would like to see is a is a is a world order in which the main. Uh, 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 the main important international institution is not only the UN, but the UN as it was before undue American influence started corrupting many of its uh, uh, workings and agencies. And so that's what China would like to see. Instead, what the United States wants, uh, what wants is not the proper international law which, for instance, would would make all these sanctions completely illegal, all the sanctions, unilateral sanctions that have been imposed, since they are not imposed by the United Nations, they are illegal. So that would recognize the illegality of such actions. So instead of that, the United States, instead of the UN and international law, the United States wants to impose the so-called rules-based international order, which is essentially whatever rules that suit us and not any rules that suit everybody else who we want to subordinate. So Rubio, or the rules-based international order, is really what NATO would like to enforce. So the United States would like NATO to prevail, the rules-based international order to prevail, and for China to be subordinated to all this. Well, China is not going to accept that. China knows what the United States wants, and China will work quietly, and, and, and steadily and consistently to ensure that it certainly does not do anything to allow that to happen. So I think that this is this is the situation with China. Yeah, and, and, and even in the face of all that, of course, with the U.S.'s support, Taipei is uh, committing a record amount of money uh, to defense spending this year. Now, for them, $8.7 billion dollars over the next five years, that's B with a billion with a B, is a record amount of spending for them. But that's that's just a drop in the bucket for the United States uh, to boost its uh, uh, asymmetric warfare capabilities and all kinds of stuff. And they want to increase the size of its military ranks. So, you know, what what is the likelihood that the United States would... Uh, assist Taiwan with funding the way it's assisting Ukraine, maybe not with as much money, but certainly if Taiwan would ask the United States, hey, we feel threatened by uh, China, we need your help with, um, you know, more equipment and and funding. I I mean, would, would that, do you think that would be an overt or a covert kind of action that the U.S. would do? Because I don't think the question is whether the U.S. would help them or not. I think the question for me is, how would they do it? Are we talking about a, an, an overt action or something that is a hush-hush 
wink, wink kind of deal uh, that is probably going on now anyway, Dr. Desai. Right. So I, I think that the U.S. has been helping Taiwan militarily for a very long time. So there is no reason for it, to, particular reason for it to be covert. So, so I, I, I mean, I think the questions you pose are really important. So let, let's just dial back for a second. What has the United States done in the case of Ukraine? The United States have, is essentially using Ukraine in a proxy war against Russia. So the Ukrainians fight in order to achieve American purposes. Similarly, it may put Taiwan in the same situation. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, of course, every on the whole, practically, you know, most of the money that American allies, quote unquote, spend on military is going to be more profits for the American military industrial complex. And then finally, thirdly, and this is very interesting, and perhaps I know that we have to end soon, so it's a good point to end on. Thirdly, the Americans have been able to give aid and all these things to various countries, like actual money aid, mainly on the strength of the fact that it can keep on issuing more money as, as a form of IOUs to the rest of the world. But as, in, as we have already seen, these sanctions, these financial sanctions, particularly the freezing of the Russia's central bank reserves, has had sent shockwaves through the world. Everybody can see that the United States has essentially stolen Russia's money. Now, if your bank just steals your money, you know, one day, you are going to and your friends who hear about it will say, well, really, should we put our money in this bank? So what American sanctions have done, the American sanctions have been imposed on the idea that, oh, well, we have this power, we can use it any way we like. But precisely this sort of abuse of power is actually going to undermine the dollar system. And if the dollar system is undermined, as it is, in fact, being undermined, the United States' ability to write IOUs and give uh, aid to the rest of the world will shrink massively. So that, you know, this is also one of those strange paradoxes. You know, the world is being reshaped as we speak, and you have to examine very closely the consequences of the different actions, because in, particularly in the case of the United States, the intent behind the action will not be achieved, and very often the opposite will be achieved. Yeah, definitely. I definitely think that's the case. I also think that <laughs> the U.S. is likely uh, pretty aware of uh, the danger that the dollar may be in, but yet they just keep plowing forward. And that's sort of the there's like this strange sort of self-destructive streak in imperialism that that is so interesting and that I think is um, probably a consequence of the uh, sort of the, the this bottomless hunger that imperialism has for expansion, which is what we're seeing in real time right now with uh, the war in Ukraine as a proxy for Washington wanting to have this all out conflict with Russia, even if uh, it impacts the, the, the dollar, even if it causes inflation, even if it causes global hunger, even if it threatens humanity as we know it through a mutually assured destruction of open conflict with another nuclear power. I mean, these folks in charge just just don't seem to care. There's just sort of a, a, a kind of insanity about this whole system. And like I say, a whole a self-destructive aspect to it. This is why an independent movement 
is so sorely needed, a, a, a real independent anti-war and anti-imperialist movement that isn't connected to the Democrats, that isn't connected to the Republicans, but is instead uh, a concern first and foremost with um, the needs of humanity that are under attack through this war on a number of levels. And since we see uh, the U.S. government on this uh, self-destructive path, I mean, those of us who would prefer, you know, a society with with people's needs at the center um, obviously need to really intervene here. And uh, uh, I'm confident and hopeful that we'll begin to see a strengthening of this movement as things continue, as it will be necessary to make sure that the ruling class doesn't push us into oblivion. But we're going to leave it there for today and this week here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch DDC. One thing Dr. Radica decides so much for joining us today. We'll be back next week with an all new slate of episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.